Well, have you ever come to a place in your life where you've just run out of patience, you've, you've dealt with some issue or something so long that finally you just shout out, enough is enough. I'm done with this already. Like, let's finish this. Let's move on. No more. Anybody? Okay. Most of us, right? Sometimes there's things that push us to some place in our life where we're like, I just, it's got to stop. Enough is enough. And those inflection points, those, those places in our lives can be good if they motivate us to change something or do something different for the good, for better. Sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes we get so frustrated with doing the same things over and over or experiencing the same thing in the same way or whatever it is that we say enough is enough and we move on to something better. And we change, okay, no more of that. I'm gonna move over here. I'm gonna do this differently. I'm not gonna, they say, you know, one of the, the a simple definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over but expecting a different result. <laughs> It's when we get to that, finally to that spot, we're like, okay, I'm not going to keep doing that anymore. I'm going to push that behind. And I'm going to go somewhere else. Now, I, I want you to know that the, the places like that that I'm talking about here are, are moments that come from a place of, of gathered strength, not of weakness. What I'm describing here today and what we're going to see here in 1 Peter today is different than where you hit rock bottom and you've got nothing left, and you're like, okay, enough is enough, I give up. It's not that. It's not that place. It's not that kind of uh, brokenness. It's, it's different. It's like hitting this obstacle over and over that you will no longer tolerate, and finally you're like, all right, I'm stepping over this thing, and I'm moving on. That's, that's it, moving forward. And that's, that's the, the tone that Peter brings to sin in our lives here today. So read it with me, 1 Peter chapter 4, We'll start with just the first two verses. Here's what he says. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, notice the first thing that he's talking about here is that we're, because Jesus did what he did, because he was willing to suffer for us, he says here, you're going to have this same mindset that Jesus had. The same way of thinking is the actual phrase that he uses there. And we know that in the Bible, if you've read the Bible much and you go through it, you see that over and over in the Bible. The Bible in the New Testament often tells us, hey, get the same sort of mind that Jesus had. That's going to be important for you. Get that mind focused the way Jesus had the focus. And, and we know that Jesus was willing to suffer in the flesh because the outcome was worth it. He knew that by suffering in the flesh, by taking on the sins of the world, that there was an ability, as we saw last week, that he could bring us to God. That's what we talked about. That was the, the gap that was closed happened because we were separated from the holy God and he made a way to take that sin upon himself to bring us to himself. And although Jesus never sinned, he was willing to suffer for our sin because he always had us in mind. That's the mindset that he had. He said, there's, I'm willing to suffer here, struggle here, because there's a goal, there's something else out there that's worth it. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it describes this. It says, for our sake, he, meaning the Father, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That was his goal, that we would be righteous and in right relationship. And here, Peter tells us to arm ourselves with that mindset, a willingness to suffer for the good of others and to fulfill fulfill the will of God. That's what Jesus did. He didn't sin. He didn't deserve the punishment that he took on, but he said, it's worth it for me because I'm gonna go and I'm gonna suffer for, for these people and fulfill the will of God. And so Peter says, get your minds in the same way where you're willing to endure suffering and fulfill the will of God. And it's interesting here that he uses this phrase, arm yourself. Okay, what, what, what does that mean, arm yourself? He's talking about taking up weapons. That's what arming ourselves is. It's taking up a weapon, specifically spiritual weapons. Now, why would anyone in any situation arm themselves? Why would somebody take up arms? Two reasons. There's, there's the offensive side and there's the defensive side. That's why people take up weapons to either uh, move forward in offense or to protect themselves in defense. And what we find from a spiritual sense is that both are needed in our Christian lives. We need spiritual weapons to move forward offensively. We also need spiritual weapons to defend ourselves. Um, And in this case, the weapon that Peter describes is Jesus's mindset, Jesus's way of thinking. Now, it might seem like strong language to you um, to think about our spiritual lives requiring weapons. Um, This isn't a conversation about um, gun rights or gun control. It has nothing to do with that. (laughs) Come back into the spiritual realm here. Um, But that's exactly what is described in the Bible, that there are spiritual weapons necessary for doing battle in a spiritual realm, okay? 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, we're not talking about physical weapons, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, we, we sometimes... And, and it makes sense that we do it this way, but we sometimes view spiritual things as these elusive, hard to track down, um, fleeting things. It so, seems so mystical and so out there and the spiritual realm, I mean, um, a few months back, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you remember in Ecclesiastes, Solomon there was always writing, talking about how, how life is a vapor, and it's just, it's, it's like wind. You, you, it's just here and there and where is it? And it's gone before you know it. We, we view spiritual things, um, the spiritual world in that way. Kind of like fairy dust that's sprinkled somewhere that we just catch out of the corner of our eye. Oh, was that something spiritual? You know, it's here, it's there. Where is it really? It's an enigma. And because we have that view, sometimes we have the opinion that our spiritual lives then If we say, okay, well, it's out there, but I can't really put my finger on it. I'm a spiritual being, but what does that mean? And what's that look like? Because we have that that view, we sometimes think that our spiritual lives are gonna develop just magically. Well, if it's all this spiritual out there stuff anyway, then I guess some people grow this way and some people don't. 
It's wherever the spirit blows. Jesus discussed this misunderstanding about our spiritual lives to a man named Nicodemus in John chapter three. And in John chapter three, Nicodemus, who happens to be a Pharisee, which is one of the religious leaders of the time, comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And the reason he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night is because he's heard some of Jesus' teaching and he's like, I want to understand that. I want to get that. But I can't show up in the daytime because the rest of my spiritual religious friends and the Pharisees, if they see that I'm over here talking to Jesus, it's not going to go well for me. So I'm going to sneak in, middle of the night, talk to Jesus, knock on his door and say, hey, Jesus, what is this that you're talking about, this whole you know, new life and all this? How is this? And Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus and says, listen, you've got to be not just born of, of the water, but of the spirit. You have to have, be born again. There has to be a spiritual birth in your life if you want to be right with God because you're dead right now spiritually. And there's, there's this new life that has to come. And in that conversation, Nicodemus is just like, what? How does that happen? Spiritually, he's thinking fairy dust. <laughs> He's like, I don't understand this. What do you mean by that? And Jesus says in John 3 to 8, or John 3 verse 8, sorry. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Now, sometimes people read that verse and they're like, see, who knows about the spiritual things? Jesus said something about the spirit blew around and whatever. You don't know where it went, where it comes from. That's not what Jesus was saying here at all. He wasn't describing it that way at all. What he was teaching was that the spirit has a mind and a will of its own, but more importantly, that it impacts the people that are born again. It's not just random or fickle. The thing is, we just don't know where it came from or where it went, but it was here. And we see the result of the work of the Spirit in somebody's life. All right, uh, for instance, as the wind starts to pick up here this morning, if we keep going long enough and I turn just right with the microphone, you'll hear this that comes into the microphone. All right, did you see the wind go into the microphone? No. Do you know where it came from? somewhere that way. Do you know where it's going? Well, right now it's blowing that way. We don't really know where it came from. We don't know where it's going. But did you hear something? You would. And when we put this up later, we'll go through and we can see the little audio spikes that happen where the wind blows into the microphone. The results of it were here. Something took place. It happened. All right? And the reason I bring this up is because what I want you to understand is that that view that the, the spiritual things are just out there and maybe they're here and maybe they're not and maybe we know some of it and maybe we don't. What you have to understand, the way that the Bible looks at the spirit, our spiritual lives and the spiritual realm is that the spiritual battle that exists in our lives is real. It's real. Our spiritual lives are real. And when we start talking about sin and taking up weapons to deal with sin, which are spiritual problems, we have to understand that those things are real. And if we want to see the elimination of sin in our lives, it's going to require battle. And battle requires weapons. You know, the most famous passage in the Bible on spiritual uh, warfare and the, the weapons of this battle is Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read you a little section of it. 
which says this, starting in verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is a spiritual being. And listen, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Look, there are real spiritual forces at work in this world. And many are aiming to destroy you. In the face of sin and death, Jesus, though, stood firm. And his mindset that Peter's pointing us to as a weapon, his mindset allowed him to overcome that spiritual battle even through suffering. All right? Now, think back to what we've seen in verse one and two. He says, Christ suffered in the flesh. He says, arm yourselves with that way of thinking. And then he talks about more about suffering. For the one who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let's talk a little bit about suffering. Because there's different degrees of suffering. There's different types of suffering. And that just kind of feels vague. It's just bad. That's all we know. Suffering, avoid it. That's all we know and think about. But not all suffering is evil. Part of what we've been learning in 1 Peter and will continue to learn is that Peter was encouraging these these people, these Christians, in, in saying that sometimes suffering can have a good result in your life. There are certain things that you go through that God allows you to go through that refines you and shapes you. Some of those places, like I said at the very beginning of this message, some of those times when we finally get to the place where like enough is enough actually results in growth in our lives. It allows us to move forward in the way that we should. And not all suffering is equal. There's there's good suffering, suffering for good, suffering for evil. Some's short-term, some's long-term. Jesus himself endured physical suffering, mental suffering, emotional suffering. Jesus took all those things on. But specifically here, the suffering that Peter is talking about is, and we're going to see this as we go on in First Peter, involves the struggle of the battle of trading our sinful human passions, our sin, for the will and desires of God. And what he's going to tell us here is that has a cost. It actually is going to take something out of you to push off sin in your life and begin to accept the, the things that God is calling you to. In the Old Testament, there's a story I think that illustrates this pretty well, and it's about Moses. And you may recognize the name of Moses. Moses was the the one who God chose to take the children of Israel who had been in slavery in Egypt out of Egypt. And the whole book of Exodus is all about that story. Well, earlier in scripture, it talks about Moses' life. At the time in Egypt, the Israelites were slaves there in Egypt, And because they were multiplying so quickly, the Pharaoh of Egypt said, this is not good. There's going to be more Israelites in Egypt than Egyptians. And so he made this vicious decree that said, I want my soldiers to go around and start killing all the babies that are born to the Israelites. 
So if you're an Israelite and you have a baby, we got to kill that baby because the popul- we need population control. Well, Moses was one of those babies born during that time. And Moses' mother was like, I'm not killing my baby. And so what she did is she made, a, you may remember this story from Sunday school, she made a, a basket and covered it in pitch so that it would float in the Nile River. And she took Moses and hid him from the soldiers and everyone else floating in the river. But as the story goes on, what we find out is Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the river and here's a baby and finds Moses in this basket and decides, I want this baby for my own. I want to adopt this baby like my own baby. And she takes Moses. And as the story goes on, Moses is raised as an Israelite baby, but, but he's an Israelite baby, but he's raised as an Egyptian in the palace with the daughter of Pharaoh. And it tells us later in the New Testament, in Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26, here's what it tells about Moses when he made the, the decision to leave all that he had in the house of Pharaoh and choose instead to associate himself with his lineage, with the Israelites. And it says in Hebrews eleven twenty four says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated. He chose suffering with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Do you see how this parallels with what we talked about with Jesus? Jesus said, I'm willing to suffer because I see the reward. Moses said, I'm willing to suffer because I see what I'm called to. This is what we're being called to as well. And what is it that we're called towards? The will of God. What he says is leave the sin behind so you can focus on the will of God, that you can look to the will of God. And Peter's casting a vision for our lives as people that are also looking for the reward. People that have said enough is enough. Let's move on to spiritual maturity put these sins out of our lives once and for all and do God's will. That sounds good, right? What Peter says here is something that's a little shocking to us where he says, and the person that suffered in the flesh, they've ceased from sin. They've ceased from sin. Now, what's he saying here? Does he say, well, uh, that means perfection. Is he saying that you don't sin ever again? No, that's not what it's being said here. And if you read it immediately, you might think that, but that's not what's being said here. When we choose to arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ and we choose the path that Christ chose, what we're doing is we're leaving the downhill path that leads to sin. And we become willing to suffer up the path of righteousness. Now, so think about that a little bit. Have you ever been on a a family hike that goes up a hill somewhere? I have. And have you ever been, you know, going up, 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 you don't know where the end of this thing is and everybody starts moaning and complaining and when can we go down? Like, I don't want to go any higher. No more up the hill. It's just up. It's too hard. Down is so much easier and better. And that's just me, not to mention my kids, right? If you turn around and just start going downhill, it's like, all right, great. Now we just kind of go down the hill. It's easy. They're suffering to continue going up the hill. That's what we see in our spiritual lives. 
That's what he's describing here. He's like, look, that upward path, the path that goes toward righteousness, there's some suffering involved in that. And the path that goes down to sin, that's easy. You just let it loose and you just slide right down the slope. All right? And, and that's what he's saying. He's saying when you've, you've chosen that path, you're leaving the path of sin behind. Now, this is where it gets confusing though. Because what happens when we stumble over sin in our lives as we're on that path? What happens is we immediately start asking ourselves, well, wait a minute. Does this mean I've got sin in my life? I chose this path. Was, am I not really saved? Like, it's, did, did I not really hear God's voice? Am I actually a sinner that's just headed down here? Am I really just headed to hell? Is that what's happening? No, that's not what's going on. We're stumbling over obstacles and sin that are on that path. Suffering doesn't make us sinless, but it helps us in our battle against sin. You'll see how here in a minute. minute. So let me just ask the question. This is a small, safe group this morning. Does anyone here, and I want you to raise your hand, does anyone here struggle with sin? Oh my. Oh oh my. Wait, keep your hands up here. Oh, Oh my, okay. Most of us here struggle with sin. We all all struggle with sin. Why? Didn't we pick the right path? I mean, come on guys, you're at church. And here you are voluntarily saying you struggle with sin. Why is it? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that we're fallen human beings. We have a sin nature But we also recognize even though we're pursuing the Lord, we see this duplicity in us. It's like half the time I'm like, who is this guy that lives in me? There's a part of me that just wants to love the Lord and do everything for the Lord and sacrifice everything for the Lord and follow after the Lord. And then there's this other person who I don't even like to acknowledge that's just self-centered and self-focused and angry and hate-filled and lust-filled and wicked. And it's like, how does this two people live in one body? It's a, it's a brokenness in us. Not only that, some of the things that we run into once we've begun following the Lord and pursuing the Lord is just literal ingrained patterns within our lives. These attachments that maybe we had even before Christ or our ways of doing things or the ways that we were raised or the addictions that we struggled with or whatever it is, those things are still in our, in our bodies, in our flesh. Well, let me tell you, no temptation is new. And as you can see, looking around, you are not the first or the only one to struggle. You're not. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that very thing. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. It's common that we struggle with sin. Okay, so now here's the the follow-up question to that one. This one feels better to answer. Does anyone here want to stop sinning. I got two hands up for that one. Yes, please, Lord, help me. Okay. Enter suffering and battle. It's not really the answer you wanted to hear, but that's what is described here in this passage. Suffering can have a purifying effect in our lives. That's why Peter would be willing to tell us today, it's sometimes good to suffer. Because suffering can help you grow. Suffering can change you. It's like I talked about at the very beginning. Sometimes when you get to that spot where you're like, no more. 
It's like that's the determination that you needed all along to finally step over this thing and move forward. Suffering will bring us to that spot. It can help us kill sin by the power of God. Jesus, we know, he's the one who, who destroyed the power of sin permanently. All right, we don't have that power. Only Jesus had that power. But the problem is there's a residue of sin, this sticky mess all over the earth. So even though the power, the ultimate power of sin has been broken, we've still got a lot of cleanup to do. And that's what you find in your own life. Yes, has God saved you? Yes. Has he changed you? Yes. Has he seated you in the heavenly places with him? Yes. Has he got eternity for you? Yes. But you got a lot of sticky mess that still needs to be cleaned up in your life. That's how it works. That's why in Colossians 3, 5, Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. He's writing to Christians. But he says, put to death those things that are earthly in you. And then he lists, lists a list of sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And here's the thing about sin. Most sin is rooted in selfishness, self-focus. We naturally think of ourselves first and we'll stop at nothing to please ourselves. And guess what? That's when we begin sinning. I've told you before that um, a simple way to define sin is anything that damages a relationship with each other and with God. If it does that, if it damages other relationships, it counts as sin. Go through the Bible. And why is um, stealing sin? Because what you're doing is you're damaging a relationship with somebody else. They worked hard for whatever it is that you stole. Right? That's, that's what happens. It, it breaks those relationships. But when we choose the path of righteousness and neglect our own self-centeredness and our own self-desires, then we begin breaking the power that those desires had over us. If, you, if you've uh, known anybody, or maybe you yourself have gone through addiction recovery of any type, that's a big part of what's involved in that whole process. It's choosing to say, I have to change the way I've always lived, and I'm no longer going to go full in to all of those desires that I have to please myself, but instead I'm going to start making decisions that neglect that and push that away. And when those things rise up and come up and call me back to them, I'm going to cut them off and I'm going to choose a different path. Guess what? That's suffering. Ask anybody who's gone through it. It's not easy stuff. It's painful. It's hard. It's suffering. It's struggle. But Peter is calling us to choose God's desires over our own desires. And denying the fallen passions of our flesh is one of the basic skills we have to learn as Christians. You've got to learn this. But guess what? It still hurts. Choosing to deny your own self always hurts. And what happens when we don't? Well, we're going to suffer for it, but we can suffer, unfortunately in that case, for evil. When we sin, we still deal with the consequences. Even if you're a Christian that has been saved by grace, you, you sin, you still have the consequences that you have to deal with. That's how it works. Jesus told us in Matthew 16, 24 to 25, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
That's what we find all the time throughout the gospel. It says, look, we got to push back against those things that want to take us over. And that's what he, Peter goes on to. So now go on, um, 1 Peter 4, picking up there in verse 3, he says, for the time that is past suffices, it's sufficient for doing what the Gentiles, that's those who don't know God, want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Here's what he says. He says, whatever amount in the past that you've engaged in all this sinful behavior, whatever amount, however, how much it's been or how little it's been, it's enough. It's enough already. No more. You don't need more. The world romanticizes these passions, these sinful things and tells you this is the way to go. Party it up, live it up, do whatever you feel. Just go wild, it's awesome. But what do we learn? We learn that sin, all sin, always leads to death. Maybe not physical death. Unfortunately, sometimes it's physical death, but spiritual death at least. And when we continue on that path of sin, we continue to poison ourselves just a little at a time, little by little. And the problem is we know that sin is never satisfied. Never. There's, it never is. It's a product. Sin is a product of the devil. And because it's a product of the devil, it shares his desires. As we're going to learn in 1 Peter chapter 5, the, the Bible tells us that the devil is prowling around looking for someone to devour. That's what sin is for. It's to devour you and destroy you. How much is enough for our sinful passions? Just a little more. That's how sin gets you. Just a little more. I, I won't go that far. I'll never OD. You know, that's what, that's what those people do. I'll just go a little bit farther, a little bit farther. No, that's not how it works. And in verse four, he says, with respect to this, they, the people out, that, that are not following God, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit, the way God does. The world around you is gonna be, first, they're gonna be surprised that you don't wanna join in with them in sin. That's how it works. First, they're gonna be surprised. But unfortunately, that surprise quickly turns to ridicule. At first, when you tell them, hey, I'm not gonna live life that way anymore. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna leave that stuff behind. At first, they're like, what? That's not you. Like, what do you, I could count on you. You're my party buddy. What is going on? And then very quickly, it turns to, you're a freak. Like, I don't know what's wrong with you. Are you kidding? Like, that's ridiculous. What's the point? Live it up. Seriously? They cannot comprehend why you wouldn't join them in these things. And it's true. Sin feels great for a time. That's what sin is. It is feeding us. It's feeding our flesh. But it grows until it consumes us. That's what sin does. That's the nature of sin. And that's one of those dark secrets about sin that you don't really see until you've lived enough years on earth. And now that I've got the gray hair, I can say I've lived enough years on earth to realize that that's what sin always does. I probably wasn't convinced when I was 22, but I'm very much convinced now in my 40s. 
It is, that's the way it works. Sin is like a fire. Proverbs 6 talks about it and says, can anybody take the coals from a fire and kind of scoop them up into their lap and just hold them up tight without burning their clothes or burning themselves? No, you can't. If it's hot coals that you dump in your lap, they're gonna burn you. You're gonna get burned. Sin is that way. But sin at a distance can keep you kind of warm and cozy at first. Who doesn't like being around a bonfire in front of a fireplace, hearing the crackle of the flames? It's kind of nice. But realize that the smallest spark can lead to a wildfire that destroys everything in its path. And the wages of sin is always death. It always is headed in that path. Now, one of the ways that we try to deal with sin in our lives is by controlling it. We're like, well, as long as the fire stays in the fireplace, we're all good. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. There is an enormous difference, hear this, between sin management and sin removal. Okay, sin management just says, well, I'll just try to keep it restricted. I'll just kind of hold it back. It'll be small and it'll be just kind of my thing that I kind of keep off to the side. Nobody has to see it or know about it. I'll just hang with it here. It'll be good. It's fine. It kind of nurtures me a little bit, comforts me. That's sin management. Sin removal is like, nope, I don't care how big or little, it's gone. It's got to get out of here. Even if you could keep sin restricted in your life, you're restricting your spiritual growth. This is one of the things that that Christians, I think, miss a lot. They feel like, well, I'm going to mostly be all for God, but I'm going to keep this little thing here and I'm going to keep it in control. Guys, it will hinder your spiritual growth. You will not grow the way you want to grow as long as that little bit is hanging around, messing stuff up. That's just how it is. You know, I, in our backyard, um, a few years back, I planted this jasmine plant. This is also how you know I'm old because I care about plants. So um, jasmine is this uh, bush that has these little white flowers that smell really good. Um, some of them are blooming out right now. If you walk around, you'll see these little white flowers and they smell really good. Well, we planted this plant and at first it seemed like it was this bush. It seemed like it was doing fine. It's a healthy plant, got some flowers. It's all good. But pretty soon the leaves started turning weird colors, like reddish and not looking good and dropping leaves and flowers weren't coming. I'm like, what's going on? What we realized is the soil, the plant was fine, but the soil was restricting the growth of the plant. There was something wrong in the soil. There was sin in the soil, you could say. And even though the plant was what it was to, you know, it's made to grow, it's made to do what it's supposed to do, that little bit of bad soil was messing stuff up and it wasn't allowing it to grow to the bush that I had envisioned that I wanted it to be. Sin does the same thing. Jesus breaks the power of sin so it's no longer our master, but we can still let sin bully us and torment us if we leave it around. And once sin is removed, it can be replaced with something far better and our passions can be re-aimed. And that's what he says there. That is toward the will of God and life in the spirit. He says there that the gospel is preached to everybody, including those dead in their sins, with the same goal. The goal is living in the spirit the way God does. 
That's what he says. The goal of the gospel is life in the spirit. What's that life like? Holiness, freedom, joy, peace, being in right relationship with your creator, assured of your salvation, confident in your faith, real life, not held back by all these other things. But the problem is your sin and my sin keep us from that life. That's what keeps us from that life. It's sin. And it is tragic when people die without hearing the message of the gospel. But you know what also is tragic? It's tragic when people who have the gospel die without ever living like it. That's also tragic. Jesus did the work, the hard work, the heavy lifting. He broke the power of sin but we let it still just cripple us and slow us down and beat us up and push us around. Let's make a choice not to be those people. Enough is enough. And my last point here is that Jesus came and suffered that we might have life. Do you want that today? Do you? You said you wanted to get rid of sin. Do you really? Do you want that life? Well, arm yourself with the mind of Christ and even suffer if necessary to remove the sins that are holding you back. That's what Jesus does. He comes and breaks chains. He brings deliverance and victory. Not just the strength to create sin management, but the power for holiness and purity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I do pray that you would bring permanent freedom to your people. Spirit of God, I just ask that you would burn away our desires that want to see us burn to death. I pray that you would break addictions. I pray that you would topple strongholds, that you'd set captives free. Fill us with your life, Lord. Make us vibrant and healthy and alive in you. And Lord, I know that lots of us have heard messages like this before. And I know that we have considered what it takes to become those people that are free from our sin. And I know that many of us have meant well and been well-meaning in our fight against sin. But maybe we haven't still experienced freedom. And today, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that my brothers and sisters here would experience that freedom. And, And even there, Lord, as the wind is blowing into the microphone, like I described, Lord, as that happens, I pray that your spirit would blow into our hearts and change us. You have done the work, Lord, and I pray that you would allow us the courage to do the work as well. Work in our hearts and work in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.